Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And quite an quite an hour of power coming for you tonight. We uh, will be talking with the chief executive of Process Naspas. That's only about hmm, 20% of the South African stock market. Bob van Dijk on financial results that were released today for the year to end March. Also, we'll hear about the RAND, where the RAND's going to uh, from Andre Salia of Treasury One. It's been pretty volatile recently, and with the strength in the dollar, oh, who knows? PPC is a wonderful turnaround situation, and we have the chief executive of PPC uh, gracing us with his presidents. And, of course, this being Monday, David Shapiro has got his views on it. David picked up PPC for his I think he called it his cemetery portfolio. Anyway, the companies were completely bombed out, and uh, he's done very well from it. He'll be giving us insights on that. Then we will be talking, as always, with Justin Rowe Roberts, who will be kicking us off in just a moment. Bride Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, Justin, we have got a completely remote show today. Everyone, nobody in the studio with the, the third wave having hit Gauteng. My goodness, just about every second person I know has got COVID. Not just the uh, the whole of Gauteng, Alec, but also the bigger part of the business team happens to be infected. Not ideal, but the markets go on. The JSE All Share Index was flat at 65,500. There's a sharp reversal in the currency markets over the weekend, with the rand considerably weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 28 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 83 cents to the pound, and 17 rand to the euro. Gold is steady at $1,778 an ounce. Kruger Rand is trading at approximately 25,500 Rand. Brent crude is up at $73.50 a barrel. And Bitcoin is well down, trading at a touch over 460,000 Rand a, a Bitcoin. Before we go into the, into the rest, uh, you mentioned the Rand's been under a bit of pressure lately. Dollar strength, Alec. Uh, I think we've seen over the last uh, week or so that it's been a risk off environment. Uh, people are, are getting uh, hesitant in the in the United States with regards to valuations, inflation, what the Fed's going to do. There's just so many what ifs. And I think uh, some investors and traders are taking some money off the table. I think the real interesting point to look out for here is um, the amount of movement in terms of uh, we've seen a whole big day trade uh, with the whole trade traders coming into the scene over the past year or so. Will they be able to metal a 5-10% correction? I don't think we're going to see anything bigger than that, or hopefully not. But can they even take a 5% correction? Because that could lead to something greater in the equity markets and a lot more hesitancy going forward. Oh, it's so interesting the way that the world has changed. These meme stocks, as they call them now, that uh, well, really names. They're just buying names. It's like going to the race course and saying, "Okay, I'm going to play number four on every race and hope for the best." Exactly, and actually, what we've seen with GameStop and AMC, two of the larger meme stocks in the U United States, those management teams have actually uh, taken advantage of the rise in the equity in the equity price by issuing new equity, um, which is an opportunity opportunistic move, yes, but I think it's a it's a good move in terms of um, for the long longevity of those companies. But if I have to look at the major moves here on the South African front, uh, all the rand hedges gaining. That's as a result results of the week rand. I look at SAPI, uh, the old mutual asset management spin-off, Quilter, Process 2% up, MTN, emerging market counter, also 2% up. If I look at all the big losers, mainly South African Inc-based, uh, Transaction Capital, Mr. Price, Vukile, yes, I guess they do have um, a lot of Spanish exposure too. Um, but just an interesting market dynamic, I guess, at the moment. There's just so many uncertainties and, 
yeah, uh, what's going to happen next? I think that's the big question. It's fascinating that every day you can have these changes. For instance, now a little bit of concern if American interest rates go up, then South African interest rates will have to follow them, and wow, there come the, uh, the retail stocks under a bit of pressure today as well. But it is a, a, an interesting world that we're living in, not just because the markets influence our wealth, but because they influence criminal activity as well. I got uh, a, a fascinating clip uh, from our partners at Bloomberg that I want to play for you. And just to get your thoughts, and then I'll, I'll give you a bit of background. I used to farm in Moy River and do a, a radio show, a national radio show, from my barn. I had a, a soundproof studio right next to where the horses were. And it, it was almost uh, idyllic in a way until the cable thieves came along and they stole the telephone wires it was almost like a, a tide coming in that you could see that they'd taken them out just in Howick. Then they came to uh, Nottingham Road, and then they hit Rosetta, and we knew Moy River was just around the corner, and my goodness, they did exactly that. And the reason they stole those ca- uh, telephone wires was because of the copper that's in the cable. Well, with the increase in commodity prices lately, it has been a global business, this stealing or the theft of copper and other commodities. And uh, this is what our colleagues at Bloomberg had to say about it this morning. Paul Sweeney and Matt Miller uh, interviewing one of their colleagues. GLCO Go. That is the ticker on the Bloomberg terminal for global commodity prices. And I'm putting that in right now, and I'm seeing lots of uh, green in terms of the year-to-date performance. Big double-digit. Yeah, big double-digit gains for soft commodities, hard commodities, all kinds of things across the board. Uh, That's good for investors. And it also getting the attention of thieves as well, criminals. Daniela Sarturi Cortina, she's a commodities reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Danielle, you've got the big take story. Criminals are liking the commodities boom as much as investors. What did you reporting? What did, what did you find? That's right. So, you know, commodities theft is not necessarily anything new, but we have seen an uptick during the pandemic. Data is, of course, hard to come by because this is unfolding, you know, right before our eyes right now. But, you know, uh, colleagues and I talk to experts, to people involved in this industry, to law enforcement, and they are seeing an increasing criminal activity during the pandemic. Um, you know, we see companies, farmers, small businesses being targeted. We've seen reports from, you know, Germany to the U.S. to Chile to Nigeria. So what are they stealing the most? I guess they probably take what's easiest or are they making like serious, uh, serious preparations to steal the heavy stuff? Well, according to our reporting, it, it definitely varies by country, you know. So we saw that in Canada, sometimes people take advantage of, you know, lumber that's just lying around for construction. But for, for example, in countries like Chile, uh, where copper is a massive industry, these, um, you know, thieves are pretty organized. You know, when we talk to uh, police officers, um, you know, what some of the people that they apprehend that recently actually had tools that were strong enough to cut through metal straps that fasten copper. Um, so it really varies on the country. How about like just the, you know, the soft commodities? I'm looking, you know, like, you know, whether it's the the grains and agricultural products. Or, I mean, are, are they stealing sheep? I mean, I, I don't know. What are they, I mean, <laughs> bushels of wheat? Yeah, bushels of wheat. Are they going into these silos and, uh, you know, taking away the wheat? Right. Well, there's a little bit of everything. You know, some of our, our colleagues, for example, in Nigeria, Nigeria did see that, you know, farmers that um, grow cocoa and cassava, for example, were complaining that um, the increasing theft, they've seen an increasing theft. So it really, it really varies. You know, it doesn't seem to be something that's just constrained to one type of geography or one type of commodity, whether it's hard to steal or easy to steal, people are finding a way. I mean, Daniela, you're not too young to know about the greatest commodities theft of all time. It took place in Canada and involved many, many tankers. They stole so much maple syrup. I mean, when was millions and millions of dollars of the maple syrup. And it's got to be the most delicious commodity that there is. <laughs> how do they sell this stuff once they've stolen it? How do they fence it? Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it, it depends. Uh, it really depends on the industry. Um, so we didn't go that much in depth into that. Um, but we are seeing an increase, um, not just in in the things that are being stolen, but also the quantity. We heard that, for example, in Chile, that um, the loads are just bigger. So, for example, um, you know, a couple of copper slabs that can be stolen can be you know worth as much as $28,000 almost each. So it's wow. a pretty profitable business right now. 
a pretty profitable business for the criminals who are stealing just about any commodities. We know in our country, Justin, that when prices go up of commodities, you get manhole covers getting stolen, quite apart from the, the copper as well. But commodity prices generally around the world have had a good run. Completely agree, Alec. And um, one thing about these thieves, I think we've come to, as South Africans, we know all about it. They're opportunistic and they're a lot cleverer than we than we all think. And we've seen this time and time again. It's been strange to see what's been happening in commodities in the last month. They've come off. The Chinese uh, infrastructure spend seems to be coming off a bit. Um, inflation in the U.S., the Fed talks of taper. That's not good for commodities. And the commodity index counts for about 30% of the JSC all share. Um, so it's very important, and um, it's not good to see. And it'll be um, interesting when the likes of Sabanya put out their put out their results at the end of June. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Time now to pick up on today's flash briefing with Jackie Cameron. China's COVID nineteen vaccine by Sinovac Biotech is set to be approved in South Africa soon. That's according to the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority. So far, South Africa has only approved the Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson vaccines for use. Russia's Sputnik V vaccine is also being evaluated. This news comes as world media outlets report on how South Africa, which is the worst-hit country in Africa, has reported a doubling of new daily cases over the past two weeks. There is no sign of the rise slowing. The Guardian reports that Gauteng hospitals and health workers are close to being overwhelmed. Doctors are making dozens of phone calls to secure a bed for critically ill patients, it tells its international audience. Process, the international investment arm of South Africa's NASPAS, reported a better-than-expected net profit of $7.45 billion US dollars for 2021. This was driven by strong returns from its big stake in Chinese software giant Tencent. Process parent NASPAS reported a 24% rise in reported core headline earnings per share. NASPAS currently owns 73% of Process. The companies are seeking shareholder support to move to a cross-holding structure that would shift the bulk of their assets to Amsterdam. This is a proposal that has been strongly criticised by about three dozen South African asset managers who would like NASPERS and process bosses to come up with a better idea to narrow the valuation gap between the share price and the company's underlying value. The extraordinary recovery of the US economy is likely to make the country the world's top destination for overseas investment this year. That's according to BizNews Premium partner, the Wall Street Journal. According to UN figures published at the start of the week, overseas investments by businesses around the world fell by a third in 2020 from the previous year. The US recorded a 40% fall in investment, but narrowly held on to its long-held position as the top destination ahead of China. China remained the largest investor in the world, partly thanks to continued expansion of its Belt and Road infrastructure project, but some European countries are starting to block Chinese involvement in their economies. The Wall Street Journal notes that as wealthy countries inoculate large portions of the populations and reopen their economies, poor countries could struggle to attract new investment. That was your Business Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Business. For more on those and the other big business stories of the day, visit businessradio.com. Bob van Dijk is the Chief Executive of Process and NASPERS and joins us now on the day when financial results were released. Bob, uh, when you look at the performance of the company uh, from the outside, the one thing that jumps out at you is the e-commerce portfolio, which you've had revalued by Deloitte, which is now worth $39 billion. Now, that excludes Tencent and Mail.ru, and many investors believe Process has had a free ride on Tencent. Do you do this often, uh, revalue your non-Tencent and Mail.ru assets? We, we actually do that every year. So we have an independent company, Deloitte, that looks at all these businesses and forms a view. And actually, if you look at that $39 billion number that comes out of that exercise, it's actually very similar to what analysts also put on this portfolio as a value. So it seems at least that they use similar methodology and come to, to very similar conclusions. And I think that that is a big number. But if you look at what what underpins it, it is also a business that is growing really fast, right? So that e-commerce portfolio that you refer to grew uh, 54% in revenue uh, in the year that was. And that was an acceleration from 23% in, in, in last year. 
And it was even faster than a very strong first half that was 51%. And um, then the, the, the core headline earnings as a whole were growing 39% year over year. And also in, in the e-commerce business, we saw our trading, trading losses reduce very, uh, very, very drastically. And um, I think one of the, the, the points to also make, I think that drives that significant value is that more and more of these e-commerce businesses are now profitable, right? So if you, if you look at the revenue from e-commerce, 60% of that revenue is actually from profitable businesses, even though the aggregate is still in the investment uh, phase. So uh, that, that is one of the, the reasons why you see that, that value go up, uh, that uh, the independent value has put on um, uh, and that you have seen. The, the two the two areas really that I'd like to just get a little more information on. The first one is on the food delivery area, uh, where you've got iFood, Swiggy, and Delivery Hero, and your revenues were up well more than doubled in the financial year. But there's been man, many reports to say, are these companies ever going to be making any money? Because nobody seems to be doing it at the moment. Yeah, if you look at and maybe a, a, a few a few comments on it, right? So we we've seen that food business grow 127 percent in revenue over the last year, and I think uh, the, the 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 trading losses almost halved, um, and and that I think is is a good sign of the trajectory that those businesses are on, right? And uh, if you if you look at uh, individual markets and, and individual countries in the portfolio, you see profitability there already. Um, so we are really comfortable that this business is extremely valuable, and, and many investors are too, right? Actually, if you look at one of the largest uh, food delivery businesses in in the world, which is DoorDash in in the US. It's a business that's valued at, at $50 billion, even though they're yet uh, to make a profit. So I think there's a lot of people who, who do look at it in detail who get, who get very comfortable with, with the future. And we, we obviously see it from the inside and know that the profitability is there already in many parts of the portfolio. So we're comfortable to, to keep investing. So from an investor's or a shareholder's point of view, just ignore the noise uh, you know that this is a exponentially growing business and it'll be valued like exponential growing businesses have been for over a decade now. No, absolutely. And, and, and look, uh, to some extent, you see that dynamic in, in our own business too, right? So we, for many years, we had uh, operating losses in our classifieds group. I think that was the case for maybe six or seven years. And then actually not in the, the just past financial year, but the year before, we, we did turn it into a profit. And then it's, everybody said, well, that's a great business. And then uh, the analysts value it at, uh, what is it, uh, I think at around uh, $15 billion or so. Um, uh, and, and then everybody forgets that these businesses also ran uh, a growth, uh, were on a growth path and had to uh, had to come to maturity. But uh, I think it's no different uh, from food delivery than it was uh, for classifieds. EdTech is an area where there is a lot more support generally. Uh, people can see the, the value of Udemy, for instance, and the recent acquisition that you did in Stack Overflow. What has the reaction been like in the global community uh, to that Stack Overflow uh, purchase of $1.8 billion? It's been, I think it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I think the, um, the, uh, we, I think two things that were well received. Uh, one is that we are a, a very long-term oriented company and we're not looking to, to, to milk things for short-term profit. Um, and, uh, we, we obviously want to create value, but we're, we're a patient investor and, uh, and one that actually respects uh, the communities that, that we, that we, that we work with. I think that was positive. The other one is that we, we uh, Stack Overflow is really strong, has a really strong community, but it also has growth potential in, in, in markets in Asia where we actually have a lot of operating expertise. So that's where we can actually help the company, uh, really well. And also look, it is a, it's a big community. Um, and and uh, keeping big sort of trading and communicating communities strong is something that I think many of our business have in common. So it fits well with, with our DNA, and uh, I think we can add real value there. Here in South Africa, Media24 had a rough year, uh, went from a profit of $8 million to a loss of $8 million. 
It did improve, though, in the second half of the year. Are you expecting this to get back to at least break even in the year ahead? Yeah, I, I must say that, that I have a lot of respect for the colleagues at, at Media24 because actually the print business, and I, I don't think you're in the print business, uh, but the print business had obviously a very, very tough time with the pandemic. And it was uh, it was uh, really, really painful how circulations declined, advertising declined, and it was it was uh, one of the toughest years in, in, in history. But actually, on the the online side of the business, there was a lot of need for people to to inform themselves, and and, and uh, visitors and and active users really gone up a lot. And if you look at the financial profile of Media Twenty Four, the, the first few months of the year were, were terrible, but later in the year it really did recover quite healthily. And actually, the online products are are doing quite well, even though some of the the, the print products are are, are uh, still not in a great place. So. I think financially, second half, much better than the first half, and that is promising uh, for the future. It's just getting that balance right of somehow moving from print to online or getting the one to to not subsidize the other, but at least to provide a platform for growth. But going to China, there's been a lot of coverage recently about Beijing's pressure on Internet companies, particularly Tencent, which is the leader over there, by using antitrust measures. Now, given that Tencent is such an important part of your business, how are you viewing this? Yeah, so it, it, it is in many ways, if you, um, I think the the consumer internet started in, in earnest, what is it, 20 years ago, but, but really became important for people in the last, say, five to 10 years and extremely important for people in the last five years, right? And that's not only the case in China, it's actually the case, the case everywhere. And, and what's, typically happens then is that that regulation needs to catch up. It was very much uh, similar to when there were first cars in the world a bit over 100 years ago. There were no traffic rules. There were no driver's licenses. There were no speed limits. There was nothing. Um, and at some point when things become big and important, that leads to to to, to chaos. And, and then regulation, legislation has to catch up. And I think what we've seen um, uh, the government do in China is, is in no way different from from legislation that has come into the consumer Internet world um, in other parts of the world. They want to create a, a level playing field. And they introduced uh, regulation to achieve that, and I, I think it makes sense. I think Tencent is is well prepared to to deal with that. You've been criticised for the share repurchases or the size of the share repurchases. Have they been done at a profit? In other words, the repurchases that you've done to date, would you have been better suited holding off and maybe buying them lower? So I think the um, had the the share uh, repurchases create value in, because basically you're buying back uh, your own assets at a discount, right? So so that's that's what we have done, um, and the exact timing of them, uh, we we basically have have a company uh, a bank do it for us, so you can they run a program that also works in in closed periods. Um, so the exact timing of purchases is not not really in our hands. You actually put in in place a, a, a program that, uh, as long as you buy shares that are at a meaningful discount to uh, to your NAV, you actually create value in, in in the process. And the the criticism that you had uh, last week by 36 asset managers, including the public investment commissioners here in South Africa. Are you taking that seriously, given that they said that they'd already tried to engage with management, hadn't been successful, and hence they went up to the board level? Yeah, like we, we, we've had, uh, we have 85,000 shareholders at NASPERS, right? Um, and and that there's, many, there's many people out there, many of them have, have perspectives. We, we've actually had a very significant number of engagement uh, uh, meetings with 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 our shareholders, and I think that between all the meetings we've had, we covered I think up about to seventy percent of the the shareholders of Nasper. So uh, we can't engage with 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 eighty eighty five thousand people. I hope that is clear, but we do uh, invest a lot of time uh, to get to as many of the significant holders um, as possible, and we're we're keen to hear their views. 
And actually, in case of the, the collected letter, we responded within a day, right? Which, which is something we made a real effort to do. And we followed, we followed it up with, uh, with a, a sense, uh, sense announcement to make sure we don't selectively, uh, disclose, uh, disclose anything. So again, we have many, many shareholders. We spent a very significant amount of time in listening to them. Um, and we covered the majority of, of our shareholder base. And uh, we, we, we try to do the best we can. Is it going to change the swap ratio? So, no, the, the swap ratio is not going to change. I think we, we clarified it. There's, a very, there's very good, uh, good, good reasons uh, for it. And in the, um, in the end, I think the bottom line is that we, 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 we are aligned with our shareholders, right? And we want to maximize the, the value of the group. And one component of that, of that is really addressing the drivers of the, of the discount. And, and I think to, to do that, uh, the main thing we do is actually deliver results like we did today, right? So uh, you deliver strong growth. We publish uh, the, the independently set value of our business. And I think that, that will help for people to see, to see that value creation um, for what it is, but I think um, one of the, um, the consequences as well of, of that strong performance is that uh, that you become really really large uh, in the context of the JSC, and that is that is something we we need to address. Uh, so that transaction we put on the table we think is fair, and actually addresses that sizing issue in in the most substantial way that is possible at this point in time. The sale of uh, a couple more percentage uh, points in ten cent raised fourteen and a half billion dollars. You notice, uh, or you note in your results that two and a half billion dollars was put into Delivery Hero, which is in obviously the food delivery area, and then the uh, mm-hmm. Stack Overflow acquisition of about one point eight billion. Uh, how much is left in the war chest when you exclude the money that you've also been investing in? Share buybacks. It, it changes depending on when things close and when money flows and uh, and so on. So, but it's the order of magnitude of 10, 10 billion, um, and it's uh, we, we're really excited about Delivery Hero because that's a a strong growth business in really many exciting markets, and the same for Stack Overflow. I think it's one of these these businesses has such a strong community, but the return on those investments we'll still find in the future. We don't know it. We don't know it yet. We did have a look back, uh, Alec, at the return um, on the investments we made with the previous ten cent sale, and actually the the IRR of, of those investments was at an annualized thirty three point four percent. So we we managed to to invest that money well, and uh, we're we're excited about what we've done, and we're going to try to uh, to get similar good return on on um, the the cash we freed up with that that last sale. So, so how do you respond to family members, staff, uh, external people who say to you, you're being so heavily criticized for selling part of your Tencent shareholding? What is your uh, immediate kind of reaction to that when you're talking to people close to you? How, how do you explain that? Yeah, I've actually, from people close to me, uh, I've never heard, heard anything like that. And, and shareholders who look quite deeply into our food investment or ad tech investment see, see that IRR I just talked about, right? So we had the, the, the 10 odd billion that we freed up uh, three and a half years ago at, up to this point has had a 33% return, which is phenomenal and actually far in excess of uh, what we would have had if we left that money in 10 cents. So I think that's a demonstration of that being absolutely the right way to reallocate capital. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the facts are, are in, incredibly supportive of that. Andre Celia is with Treasury One, and it's always good to pick a catch up with you, Andre, on a Monday to find out how things are going in the currency markets. Now, uh, before we get there, though, just to remind you that this currency focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. The Americans are in a little state of panic after what we saw from the Federal Reserve last week, suggesting that the inflation rate might start rising quite strongly. Now, all graphs have been telling us this, Andre. Uh, Stock markets were down sharply on Friday as a consequence. But what is that doing to our currency markets? 
Well, that's an interesting one. And I <clears throat> spoke to somebody last week and I joked and I said the uh, Federal Reserve continuously speak about inflation that's in transit. Uh, and I said my concern is when it starts applying for political asylum, <laughs> uh, that will be the problem. And I think what they now admitted is that there might be an application for that um, and that there might be a need to adjust monetary policy uh, a little bit sooner and at a slightly steeper rate. Now, if we go back to what they had said before, they said 2024, uh, they, and, and that would be one increase, and now they're saying 2023 uh, and most probably two increase. When you say 2024, yes. 2023, you're talking about interest rate increases in America. So why should we be bothered about what they do in America? Well, markets are always forward-looking, and we should be bothered about what happens in America for the simple reason that that could create an exodus of money from emerging markets back into the Americas. So that flow of money could negatively influence uh, the way in which people invest money into our bond market uh, as such. So, so that's mm. why we have to observe it. And that's also very important to watch America because it is the biggest economy in the world and they determine uh, kind of what happens in growth for the rest of the world. So let's just understand this well. If the Americans increase their interest rates, then money that's sitting in rands or in bonds here in South Africa would be much would be attracted back to America potentially because of the risk issue. And the higher interest rates go up in America, the more we need to watch out for our currencies. Exactly. That is the problem. And that is why we are seeing this massive reaction uh, since last week. Uh, so it's not really a weakening of the rand at this point in time that we have to speak about. We have to speak about the strength of the dollar. Uh, if you look at the dollar, then it was trading just and hovering just about the dollar index was hovering just above the 90 levels. That's back up at the 91 and a half levels. And we just have to simply look at the euro uh, and see that that was trading close to the 123 levels uh, not so long ago. And that's down to 118. Uh, the low it went was around 118.50. It's slightly higher today. So dollar strength caused the weakness and the run on the currencies. Uh, and obviously, when you have these things, you then you go through certain technical levels, and that creates uh, orders that get triggered, uh, people buying dollars because it simply went through certain technical levels, people cutting positions that they might have had where they were uh, long of rand, short of dollars, and then they get out of that positions. And that's what we have seen last week. So the story here is that in America, they were worried about inflation. They are telegraphing the investment markets that interest rates are going to be rising sooner than they'd previously been anticipated. When are these interest rates going to start picking up? And we already have seen a reaction with the interest rates, just, just a warning that they're coming. Uh, what, what kind of an impact is it going to have on us? It could have quite a bit of an impact, but the important one is uh, if you look at our central bank, the South African Reserve Bank has always been, and for the last couple of years, been uh, also forward-looking, also looking at our inflation figures. Our inflation figures are also picking up, and the Reserve Bank uh, has always been on the forefront and uh, – you know, a little bit ahead of the curve. So this simply says to us that there's also a possibility on our side that we might see interest rate increases slightly faster uh, and uh, in a shorter time period than what was anticipated. Over time, these things do actually correct. So at this point in time, the concern is about the American rates, but we have to start watching what happens in other central banks and what they alert us to in terms of what could be expected from them and changes or possible changes in their monetary policy, including South Africa. So 
for the very, very short term, we have the strength that that might very well correct over a period of time uh, as we hear what other central banks have to say in terms of their monetary policy. There's another big change that occurred. Not only what happens in 2023 and what happens with official uh, rates by, short-term rates by the uh, Federal Reserve, but they are currently quite actively busy in the markets uh, with what you call reverse repo trades. Now, that's draining liquidity out of the short-term market, uh, and they've had had actually raised that rate by five basis points. Now, five basis points, 0.05%, sounds very minuscule, but it's significant in the sense that it was at zero. So banks can now actually take surplus cash and go and invest it with the Federal Reserve through the reverse repo market at five basis points. That means that the liquidity gets drained out of the market, money that could have been lended out to retail customers, to corporates alike, uh, which at this point in time also tells me that there's very little demand for credit. Uh, and banks are sitting with surplus cash rather than investing it with the Federal Reserve. Uh, and that is also one of the massive and big reasons why we've seen this big move last week uh, of a dollar strengthening to these levels where it currently sits. Uh, and we can expect the Federal Reserve to continue with that. And, and that's a very, very clear indication of what they think can happen to short-term interest rates and the draining of liquidity. Okay. And that's what markets are concerned about. And, and bringing it down to a practical level for importers and exporters, South African importers and exporters, what's your advice uh, that you're giving to your clients now? Well, we've had exporters that was very, very concerned at the 1350, 1360 levels uh, because that was dramatically impacting negatively on the uh, profitability. Uh, we now at these levels where we are now, uh, 1425, 1430, uh, and that's good levels, taking everything into consideration, taking into account that fundamentals in South Africa had not changed, taking into account that we will still or still expect relatively good growth for this year. Uh, we still expect... Uh, an inflow into our bond market. Our interest rates are still attractive to foreign investors at this point in time. Uh, so taking all those fundamentals into account, exporters should actually now go into the markets and look at what products they can take to hedge themselves against any further strengthening of the land back down to 1360 or 1370 levels. Uh, and importers, uh, well, we recommend it already that at those lows levels they should be buying dollars and protect themselves they should continue doing that uh, and make sure that they don't get negatively influenced by any further jump or weakness in the currency uh, especially in the short term the longer end I would still be kind of fairly happy not to take long term cover as an importer but as an exporter I would like I would like to see them coming into the market and actually covering themselves and taking out edging programs to look at protecting themselves. This Currency Focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Well, it's been quite a journey for PPC. David Shapiro and I have been around the block a few times. Dave, you will remember when PPC was part of a cement cartel in South Africa. It was, it was legal. You could actually have a cartel, and if you have a look at, at the difficulties the company's had over the past few years, you'd wonder, uh, shouldn't we have a cartel uh, reinstated there to at least make sure that the supplies continue? Not only the supplies, but uh, that you know that the prices could continue. But also, that was at a time where uh, people were putting down mine shafts, and there was huge amount of infrastructural development here. Um, you know, I've, I think PPC must be one of the oldest companies listed on the JSE. Well, I'm we can... sure it goes back to the to the, to the early two, uh, 1900s or even to the 18 late 1800s. 
I'm not quite sure, but it's one of the, it certainly is with Durban Rudiport Deep, you know, one of the oldest businesses that's been around on the JSC. Well, we certainly have the right person to pose that question <laughs> to. The Chief Executive, <laughs> Roland <laughs> van Veenen, joins us. Hi, Roland. Uh, I'm sure you, you must be much happier to present a set of results like the ones that you had today than uh, when we look at PPC. And, and maybe you can just take us through this. We don't want you to go back to when David was a little boy and, and uh, you know, the 1900s and the stuff he was talking about. But, but the share price in 2018 was nine rand a share. It dropped all the way down to 50 cents last year. What went wrong at PPC to get into that situation? No, no, thanks for having me, um, Alec and, and Dave. I don't go back 130 years like the company, um, <laughs> but let's go back a little bit a little bit less than that. When PPC started to expand um, and use the money generated in South Africa to expand into other countries on, on the continent, it did so quite rapidly, um, and it did not all work out the way it, it was planned, like you know, it, it often goes, right? And we had one particular project in the DRC, um, where commitments were made that any shortfall in cash generation of that business would be compensated by South Africa. And as a result, South Africa ended up uh, paying millions and millions of dollars into the DRC. Now, that was you know, one of the first things that I realized when I joined in October 2019, that we had to separate the balance sheet of South Africa from the balance sheet of the international operations. And effectively, that is what we have agreed to do. Uh, with the lenders. We struck an agreement with them end of March this year. We're implementing that. As a consequence, we will not longer, no longer have any economic benefits out of that business in the DRC, but more importantly, there will be no longer cash outflows and dependencies. And I think that fixed a big uh, issue that we had in the balance sheet. Um, How much did second, it cost? The, Sorry, the, the whole DRC adventure. What did it cost the company? So we have put in uh, over $70 million dollars what we call deficiency funding, so money that was not generated in the DRC, that was supplemented from South Africa. And to get out of the arrangement, we paid an additional $16.5 million uh, early April. And with that, we have drawn a big line underneath that. So no more losses from the DRC. It's, it's gone. That's correct. It's gone. Uh, David, it sounds a bit like Tiger Brands in Nigeria. It sounds a bit like some of the other South African adventures into, into Africa. It's a tough place to do business. Yeah, but but also, Alec, remember that, you know, Africa was regarded as a, a very captive area, an area that was going to grow quite dramatically. And I think certainly over the last few things, uh, attitudes have changed, not uh, notwithstanding what's happened with COVID. But I think the ambitions of Africa were far greater than the ability to actually earn money there. And I think a lot of companies have come back uh, slightly stunned. NAMPAC, uh, well, I remember that, that Andre Dureta inherited the Africa strategy, so we can't blame him for that. Uh, there's, anyway, there's a whole long list of them. ShopRite, they've also pulled out. Uh, Roland, I suppose the fact that you weren't responsible for going into the DRC in the first place must have made it easier to extract. But, wow, to write off nearly $100 million uh, could not have been easy. What Was there absolutely no way of, of being able to extract any value from it? No, the way, the way it was structured, um, I think what, uh, what was negotiated as the way out was the best possible under the, under the circumstances. And how was it structured? At the time, were the guys just over-optimistic? Yeah, there was a lot of optimism at the time, I think what Dave said. Um, but also, and that has been important in the negotiations, when we entered into that project, uh, the market projections were that there was sufficient demand for the cement plant. Mm. What we weren't aware about is that two competitors were starting mm. to build their plants about at the same time uh, and partially financed by the same uh, providers of financing. So, you know, th there's also quite a bit of um, discussion had, that had happened as to, you know, how can you finance three projects when there is only space for one? Uh, indeed. Uh, but... It's looking a lot better here in South Africa, certainly going through the numbers. Nice to see positive EBITDA being generated and, and a company that is turning around. Yeah, positive uh, EBITDA has always been, been generated in South Africa. We've gone, of course, through a very tough spot where competition increased, demand came down at the same time, uh, but it started to stabilize. And, you know, you refer to the old days 
where business was a lot easier. Um, but I, I personally believe, you know, that the current environment drives us towards innovation. It drives us towards making sure that we're cost competitive. And that is something that PPC for the last three years has been busy with, you know, making sure that we right-size our footprint to the demand that we have there. If that demand were to increase, you know, we still have spare capacity that we can bring into the market. Um, but we need to make sure that we run properly what we currently have and what we need for this market. Do you have any plants that are mothballed? In our existing plants, we have both in uh, both in the northwest. Uh, so our slurry plant and our dwell bone plant, they have a mothballed kiln line uh, that we could bring back online. And we did actually for a short term uh, last year when the demand suddenly spiked post-COVID. We currently have them again in shutdown. Um, and we will not run them because we can run with, with our kilns. Mm-hmm. And I ask that because if demand picks up to the degree that we understand has to happen in South Africa with the infrastructure project, it doesn't require you to build a whole lot of new plants to no. uh, satisfy that demand. No, and, and even more importantly, you know, if the government tomorrow decides to do the right things around importation um, and you will see the importation drop to zero, mm-hmm. and the local industry could supply that easily. Just tell us about imports, because surely to import cement must be incredibly expensive. It's a heavy product. Uh, it's, it, it should be at a huge disadvantage to local producers. So how are imports doing in the South African market, and how can they land here competitively? There's, there's two reasons uh, for it, Alec. Number one is in cement production, you have a very big fixed cost. So if you are running your plant and you only need it for, let's say, 50 or 60% of the time to serve your local market, and you are close to a seaport, you will basically sell whatever comes out of that plant at variable cost plus a little bit because it generates additional cash, right? You put it on a ship, and then you ship it to wherever it goes at the lowest rates. Now, South Africa is exporting a lot of commodities to Asia. And, of course, those ships need to come back and bring something back. So the shipping rates are quite low coming back, and that makes it viable. What we have seen is that recently the shipping rates went up, and that immediately dampens a little bit the the imports. So you become very dependable as a country if you start to import massively. And suddenly that is not available anymore. You can basically not build. And we've seen countries where that happened. And we don't want South Africa to become one of those countries. That's very well put. So you can... Enjoy the benefits of dumping or dumped products from elsewhere, but watch out when circumstances change. Now, David, I know you have PPC in your turnaround portfolio. You must be happy with these numbers. Oh, yeah. We're up about 130% this year, and I think over 200% over the year. It was just ridiculous. And, and I'm saying not going back 130 years, there were certain businesses that were trading in South Africa that were trading uh, at, at, you know, even looking at the cost of the factories, looking at the, the input, you know, just the, the general, uh, those, those, those assets that you can't value, which is experience. And uh, for a 130-year-old company, you were buying this for, I don't know, less than a billion rand or two billion rand. It was just crazy. So it was one of those that uh, kind of just screamed at you, you know, that you that, that was due for a turnaround. But I, I, there's one thing I wanted to ask Roland because we did go through a period uh, a few years ago where a lot of competitors came here. Not necessarily the import, but it became a big part of the empowerment uh, game, if you wanted to call it. A lot of empowerment companies went into cement. Are they still around? Are they still com- competing in any uh, significant way? And of course, remember, Alec, we had Safarka that came Safarka that came out from Nigeria. Yeah, Dave, you know, I would separate it in two, right? So you've got the investments mm. from Sopaku and from a Chinese company uh, with a local mm. company. They built a full-fledged cement plant, right? That's a mm. big investment. Then you had also a number of companies that were buying product from Afisam, from Lafarge, and then put in additional product, fly ash and others, to, to extend their cement and put it in their own bag. You know, these cement producers, and I think those is what you refer to, mm-hmm. they have caused us a lot of grief uh, because mm-hmm. often they would produce a product that is actually not meeting the quality standards that are in place by SABS, and that's dangerous. That's outright dangerous. So we put a lot of efforts in making sure that the market understands the risk of going for the cheapest product if it doesn't match the quality that you need to build your house. The last thing you want is to put your savings into an additional room in your house and just see it crack and crumble. And we've had examples of that in South Africa, some pretty pretty scary ones. Uh, Roland, 
I've, I've had mixed messages from Zimbabwe. Uh, we had the Zimbabwean finance minister uh, on our program a couple of weeks ago, very excited about the way that infrastructure development's going there, and he refers to PPC and to the uh, volume of cement that's being sold in that country. I see from your numbers, the volumes were up 10%, but the revenues were down 13%. That's very ouch. So if you've got a growing market, but actually you are getting less for your product, uh, is that a, a, a consequence of, of uh, competition as well? Or um, is it some other issue at, at uh, play here? No, there's two, there's two issues at play. Number one is, is an issue we all understand, which is the depreciation of the Zimbabwean currency versus the rand. So there was about 75% devaluation. So even if you increase your prices in Zimbabwean currency, which is happening, of course, with the inflation, and you translate it back into rands, you see that negative impact. The second part of it is hyperinflation accounting, which I don't understand and I'm not you know, going to try to explain to you. <laughs> For me, what is important is underlying business, 10% volume growth, EBITDA margins, 30%, and the fact that the Zimbabwean business paid $4.4 million in dividends in last year and have declared another $2.6 or $2.7 million already paid this year. And lastly, about 55 to 60% of their sales is in hard currency. It's in pulas, in rands, and in dollars. So a big difference to the DRC. The big difference in the DRC to the sense that in the DRC, the, the challenge is the overall demand. There is not enough demand for the supply there is. In Zimbabwe, you know, the demand is there. We can supply. Uh, we have high, high um, utilization rates of our assets. So you have a, a healthy business. Same in Rwanda. We have a healthy business. Just help us understand what's going on in Zimbabwe at the moment. When the finance minister and others uh, refer to the, the growing uh, demand for cement, they use this as an uh, indicator that the country is on the turnaround. Yeah, they, are, they continue to invest in, in various projects uh, that we participate in. Part of what was in the generation of electricity. Uh, but we also see infrastructure projects and we see individuals. Um, you know, obviously, one of the ways to protect your income from inflation is to put it in, in brick and mortar. And so looking ahead for PPC, uh, are you now through the worst? I think I would, I would say we are really through the worst when we have done and dusted the restructure. So we have agreed how we're going to do it. Now we just need to do it. But for me, that's an important step. We have to complete the sale of our non-core assets, PPC Lime and Botswana aggregates. Nothing that um, eludes to the fact that we can't, but you know, I'd rather be safe than sorry and tell you in six months it's done. No rights issue required, um, and then focus on growth. And the sale of PPC Lime as a non-core asset, I thought Lime was core for a cement business. No, it's, it's not. Eh? So what you normally see is that line businesses used to be part of the cement business because in the old way of thinking, you know, it is the same product. You have to take limestone and you burn it. But if you look now more at the customer side of our business, line customers are not cement customers. Uh, it's a very different customer base. Uh, the technology starts to diverge. So more and more line became an orphan business in the, in the PPC portfolio, limited synergies um, throughout the group. And therefore, I think they are in a much better space uh, in the new ownership structure. David, last question from your side. Yeah, I just want to know if you're seeing any pickup in the in the market here. You know, we always look at uh, cash bill to see how many cement bags they sell and uh, issues like that. Because cement is a leading indicator. It gives you a very good idea if uh, there's any pickup in, in building, you know, even if it does come from the Bucky Builders. So, you know, really interested in how you see things here. Um, we see things as we anticipated. Retail demand was very strong coming out of, out of mm. COVID. We see that coming back a bit to normal. But if I give you an indication, you know, comparing to last year is difficult because of the lockdown. Uh, obviously, we had a very strong first quarter, or it's still not finished, but we're building up to quite a strong first quarter. However, the volumes of cement are the same, more or less, as in 2019, mm. right? Um, so it is not yet that the cement market has grown by, by 10 or 20%. So we're just getting back to where we were pre-COVID? Yes. In simple terms, yes. 
Roland van Veenen is the Chief Executive of PPC, and thank you for joining us today. David, uh, okay, so now you've got you to listen to what Roland said and tell me whether you'd be buying the shares now after you've had your 200% <laughs> jump. I, I, I still think they're cheap. I still think you can buy uh, a lot of, you know, to put this into the manufacturing context, I think there are so many businesses here that are still being chucked away. And all you have to do is compare the asset values, you know, just the, the amount of which it costs you to buy these businesses relative to where they are and what they represent in the economy. Um, I'm not a great value investor, but this is one area. You know, these are areas that I, I don't think you can ignore. And I think if you hold PPC now, you're still going to be on an upward journey, and especially looking at the results, which are starting to point in the right direction now. But it is interesting that you've got a few mm. of those value plays. PPCs, one mm. uh, Tongarts, another, uh, which yeah. which is a they've had to sell non core assets mm. to get the get the house back in order. But once they go through that process, and of course new CEOs as well, uh, same mm. thing as Roland here, and you've you've also got mm. that happening at at Tongart. It does seem to offer an opportunity for the brave. Yeah, and, and how? I think you don't have to be that brave. <laughs> you can, you know what I'm saying? And uh, you, you, you can just, uh, you can take a, a fairly decent portfolio, put a fairly decent portfolio. Problematic is that we become index huggers. You know, we, we're so scared to break away from uh, the norm just in case we caught out. So we've got British American tobaccos and, and the processes and that. And yet below that are businesses that have been you know, that have been there for so long, have got good management. And I think you touched on a very pertinent point. You know, a lot of businesses have now got new CEOs. Look at Woolworths, look at Invicta, look at PPC, look at EOH, look at, uh, as you mentioned, Tongart, and so we can go. And, you know, those are the businesses where you've got brave new or strong new management, you know, who are not going to be dragged down by legacy. So, um, I think if you want to do well, outperform the rest of the market, I still think there are great opportunities here. Well, a little earlier in the program, we spoke with mm-hmm. uh, Bob Van Dijk, the chief executive of uh, NASPAS Stroke Process. He's not a new CEO by any means. He's mm-hmm. been in the, in the uh, hot seat there for a while. He's also not a value investor, uh, being a very much a technology-based story there. Are you um, – alongside those 36 asset managers who were very angry with him, angry with uh, process, saying that they need to unbundle Tencent? Or do you think that uh, Mm. he deserves to have more time? I think give him more time, but you don't have to do anything. You know, Tencent is doing the work for us at the moment. But I think within time, the others, it's going to take time. And you're not going to lose anything. That's the whole point. You've got Tencent, it's doing what it's doing, it's growing. You've got these others which in time will start to add to that bottom line. So you don't have to become too clever and do the maths. Just leave it. You know what I mean? so just stay with where you are and, and hopefully the food delivery will start to come right. All the e-commerce uh, um, businesses will start to kick in. They're still losing some money, but they're starting to uh, generate uh, you know, better profits or, or reduce their losses. And within a few years, they'll actually start adding while Tencent is still doing the jobs. Just leave it. You know, just you know, just put it away. You know, don't 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 intellectualize about it too much. And it's interesting what Bob had to say a little earlier tonight uh, that the return that they've achieved from the money they mm-hmm. raised from selling ten cent shares has been better than what mm-hmm. has been achieved had they just left the money in ten cent. That's a that's a a big um, criticism that that some have put to them. Dave, just to close off with the uh, increase in interest rates in the United States coming mm. earlier than anticipated. We mm. saw Wall Street panic on Friday, 500-point drop in the Dow, after uh, Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve chairman there, said that interest rates are more likely to, to rise sooner rather than later. Uh, are you? Is this starting to give you a little bit of uh, pause on stock markets? Not, not really. It's giving the market something to think about. If you watch the 10-year bond in the U.S., it actually fell below 1.4. To put it into context, when the announcement came out on Wednesday, 
the 10-year bond rate went from 1.47 to 1.57, 1.6. Now it went all the way below 140, and now it's back to 145. So we've seen huge volatility that is exposing how difficult people are um, trying to interpret what the Fed is saying. No one's quite sure what the message is. And it's now up to the Fed to reinforce their message. And Alec, that message was very clear from uh, from Powell. He said we will maintain our accommodative stance until such time as we get virtually everybody who hasn't got a job back in the market, which is that, that for me was the main message. You know, we're not going to be too early in, in, in raising rates or undoing our accommodative stance. So I think that's the important thing, and I think they'll go back on it. But, I mean, the messages that are coming out have confused a lot of people, but I think you'll see it stabilized today, and hopefully we'll have a better market. You know, We'll see the S&P up and NASDAQ and so on. Thank you, David. And from me, Alec Hogg, and the team at BizNews, we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow, same time, same place. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews. News.